What a fitting song for today. Thank you, David, so much. I've heard David sing that a number of times and even have requested it at our church, and he does such a wonderful job with that. And, you know, one of the things that's uh, precious about a church like this that's uh, a Reformed Baptist is that we do recognize the Reformation. Reformation is critical to all of us. Uh, my mom attends a large Southern Baptist church in Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, the only thing they know about the Reformation is trunk or treat. That's all they know. In fact, they know nothing about it. Uh, it's never even mentioned. And, uh, you know, it's just kind of a tragic thing because... Protestants exist because of the Reformation. We have the gospel reclaimed because of the Reformation. This next Sunday, our theme in our church is going to be after darkness light, which was really the theme of the Reformation. And we are in dark, dark times today, uh, not only culturally, but even in the church. There's a great deal of darkness and uh, some sad, sad departures from the truth. And uh, we're praying, and I know you are too, that God would bring a true Reformation to the church again, but also that God would bring a true revival to our country and the people in our country. We need God's visit to this country or we are in serious trouble. Speaking of that, one of the things that is most essential for that to occur is for a people to be a repentant people, a people that understand repentance, a people that are willing to repent of their sin and to acknowledge God in Christ as salvation. With that said, I want you to open your Bibles with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. We are in our church going through James and uh, we come to a text this morning, uh, verse 21 of James chapter 1. And I'm going to be talking about repenting of remaining sin and receiving the saving word, which is really described here for us in verse 21. For our context, though, I'm going to read verse 19 through 26 this evening. The Word of God says, James 1, 19, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word that you may, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks he is religious... And does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Some have correctly said that the Christian life is a life of continual repentance. It's a growing recognition and confession of sin as you are exposed by the Holy Spirit to the Word of God. The Word of God convicts us of our sin by God's power, and we should be those that are known as repenters. We start with repentance in our own salvation whenever we're born again, and we continue in a state of repentance throughout our Christian life. It's not just a historical event. It's not just one time whenever someone is 
saved or born again that they repent and then the repentance is no longer again. Repentance is a habit of life. It should be a characteristic of the life of the believer. In the last few decades, however, though, there has been an attempt to usher the doctrine and practice of repentance out the door of the church. In fact, with the emergence of the churches today that are more concerned about what the unbeliever thinks rather than what God thinks about the church, there's a shift to a watered-down, non-offensive message that excludes the doctrine and practice of repentance. Others have decided that it's incorrect to say that repentance includes anything of turning from sin or even the acknowledgement of sin. Some have said that that is a human work and it should not be part of the gospel, that the gospel is pure in the sense that it is only to believe in Christ and not to turn from sin or turn to Christ. So they've discarded repentance on that ground that if you say you are to repent or you command someone or call on someone to repent, then you're calling on someone to do a human work. The problem with that is, is that shows ignorance of the verses in the Bible that teach us that repentance is a gift. Repentance is not something you and I make up on our own. It's not something that we come up with our own. It is a gift of God's grace that enables the sinner to turn from his sin and to turn to Christ. Others also have tried to minimize repentance by redefining it or really minimizing the definition of repentance. They've said that repentance does not include any turning from sin at all, but only the change of one's mind. That's all it means. They look at the Greek word and they simply say that that word means to change one's mind. So you just change your mind about the gospel or you change your mind about Christ or you change your mind about God or even perhaps you change your mind about your own life. But it doesn't necessarily have to involve turning from sin or even changing your mind about sin at all. And that's led to an entire population of people within the church that are believing unrepenters. They are people that come to Christ just as they are and they remain just as they are. There is no life change. There is no characteristic turning from sin. This is a habitual pattern in their life. They have a tendency to want to go back to the historical event on the calendar and say, I was born again on that day, on that month, on that year. And then they can go on living their life the way they want to live it instead of being one who conforms to the commands and image of Christ. There may be no real significant change at all in their life. And for those who adopt that particular view, that doesn't really matter. I mean, whether you have any change in your life or whether or not you are indeed a repenter of your sin. Churches are now filled with huge populations of these people. In fact, just step aside from the culture which, which, which we live in, where there are people who redefine sin altogether and in our culture excuse sin and adopt sin and practice sin in the church, sadly, there seems to be no understanding or at least an unwillingness to acknowledge the need to be habitual repenters. But I want to tell you that a lot of this goes back to what we used to call easy believism, where people could supposedly be saved by just believing the facts of the gospel. If you have anyone who has 
been exposed to the church or the gospel or the Bible in your families, you probably are aware that many of them make a confession or a profession of faith in Christ, but there is no desire whatsoever to follow Jesus, no desire to deal with innate sin in their life, no desire to repent, no desire to conform to the claims of Christ on their life. It is almost as if I've got my insurance card to keep me out of hell, and that's all I need. But I want to remind you what James says in chapter 2, in verse 19, he says these words, You believe that there is one God, you do well. He's talking to the believers there and the Jewish people there. You believe that there is one God, you do well, even the demons believe and tremble. In other words, to be orthodox doesn't mean you're a Christian. To be straight on your doctrine doesn't mean you're going to heaven. To be a man who says, I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross, that he was buried for three days, that he rose again on the third day, that he ascended up into heaven, to be someone that could quote verbatim the Apostles' Creed, to go even further with that, to say that you could even quote from memory the Westminster Confession of Faith or the London Baptist Confession of Faith or whether you were well-schooled in all of the Reformed dogmatic doctrines doesn't mean anything as far as your salvation is concerned. Having the right doctrine and the right teaching is critical, yes, but a right teaching and a right doctrine without a right practice can be damning to your soul. If you are one who believes the fact of the gospel but does not repent of your sin, there's a problem a serious problem. This is not the first time the church has ever had trouble with the whole doctrine of repentance. In fact, if we were to go back to the dark ages, whenever the Roman Catholic church and its doctrine ruled during that time period, there was a doctrine known as, and still is in the Roman Catholic church of penance. Those of you who may be familiar with the Roman Catholic church or its doctrine or its teaching are familiar with that. But during that time, they had the primary Bible that they had was the Latin Vulgate. And in that translation, Jerome translated Matthew 4.17, where the Bible says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jerome translated the Greek word, instead of repent, he translated it, do penance. Martin Luther saw that. Martin Luther was a scholar in Greek, Hebrew, and Latin. And whenever he was looking at the text and translating the first Bible into the German language, he was going through the Greek and he noticed that in the Latin Vulgate that they had translated the word there that should be repentance or repent as do penance. You say, well, what's the big deal with that? Well, there's a whole lot of problem with that because penance really is a human work. It's an attempt to please God and to have your sins paid for by human effort. What happens in the whole context of penance is this. There's first the need for contrition or lamenting over your known sins. Secondly, there needs to be a verbal confession to the priest at the church, and you need to confess all of your sins. And then the priest will prescribe for you something that you need to do. It may be 50 Hail Marys. It may be a pilgrimage, pilgrimage to Rome. It may be walking up some steps on your knees. It could be a number of different things. But basically what you're doing is you are paying for your sins. You're paying for your sins. 
And whatever is missed in the process, because I'm sure most of us understand this, we don't remember everything. So if you don't remember a particular sin and you just, it slips by and there's no penance for that sin, then you have to pay for that in purgatory when you die. This was, in fact, one of the reasons why there was so much trouble with the selling of indulgences at the time of Martin Luther. Now, indulgences have been around for some time. In fact, there are still indulgences in the Roman Catholic religion today. But in that day, especially uh, the man by the name of Tetzla, he was going around selling indulgences, and it was building upon this whole problem that you couldn't ultimately remember all the sins that you had committed in word and deed, so you knew you had some sins that you were eventually going to have to pay for in purgatory. So as he came around and he started selling these indulgences, you could literally pay for your sins and the penalty would be paid for and you wouldn't have to spend that time in purgatory suffering for your sins. And in fact, it would go even further than that. You could have a relative or a friend of yours that would be in purgatory at that time and you could pay for their sins so that they could get out sooner. You can see why that they were able to accumulate so much money. I mean, if you thought that you could pay for your sins and that you could exclude yourself from hell by giving enough money to cover your sins, I think most of us in here would be doling out the cash, right? Well, that's exactly the kind of environment that Martin Luther came into. And so he began to address this whole issue of the indulgences. In fact, the 95 theses that were nailed to the church door of Wittenberg, Germany, were primarily dealing with this issue. And the indulgences were really dealing with another problem. And the other problem was the doctrine of penance, which was a mistranslation of the word repent. And Martin Luther understood that. This was literal torture for those who practiced penance in those days. Because you never could be sure that if you died, your sins were finally atoned for. You never could be absolutely sure that every thought, every word, every deed that was evil and sinful had finally been dealt with. In fact, Martin Luther wrote these words in 1537 in a group of articles called the Small Called Articles. In those articles, he said this, each person had to enumerate all of his sins or her sins, which is impossible. This was great torment. Whatever the person had forgotten was forgiven only on the condition that when it was remembered, it was to be confessed. Under these circumstances, people could never know whether they had confessed perfectly enough or whether confession would ever end. Under this practice of penance, the sufficient work and sacrifice that was needed to pay for your sins was never, never satisfied never satisfied so there was a lot of ambiguity uncertainty can you imagine the anxiety the stress to know that you could die at any moment and have multitudes of sins that you did not remember you couldn't uh, bring to the confessional and have forgiven or even deal with with indulgences it's no wonder that whenever Martin Luther would come to the confessional and he would confess his sins that he would leave and within just a few moments he would remember a sin and return back to, con- to the confessional to confess more sin. He drove his priest nuts doing that. On one occasion, writing 
regarding this whole topic of repentance, Martin Luther said this, that repentance, the biblical word for repentance, metanoia in the Greek text, should be understood as more than just a change of mind about the facts, but also a change of mind regarding one's entirety of life in regards to sin. He went on to say, Repentance simply lumps everything together and says everything is pure sin with us. He was recognizing the passage in the Old Testament that says all of our righteousness is what? Filthy rags. So really it doesn't matter what we do. Everything we do is sin anyway. So whether or not you remember all the details or the specifics, you need something better, something greater than individual recollection of individual sins to be paid for. Repentance, true repentance is the repentance of the life of sin. Repentance of the life of sin. He went on to say, why would we want to spend so much time investigating, dissecting, and distinguishing individual sins as what is done in the practice of penance? He says, all of our righteousness is filthy rags. Advance forward about 500 years and you come to John MacArthur who wrote the book, The Gospel According to Jesus in 1988. At that very time, he was dealing with a corrupted gospel that had been primarily produced out of Dallas Theological Seminary. Lewis Berry Schaefer and others had dissected the gospel records and said that a lot of that was for the kingdom to come and that a lot of these calls for discipleship and counting the cost and Becoming a Christian because you would be willing to die was not something for now, but was something for later. And that you could actually have Jesus as Savior and not have him as Lord. You remember that. I'm sure many of you do. That some would come to Christ and said, you know what? I was saved back in so-and-so day, but I didn't make Jesus Lord till 20 years later. It was almost as if you could live in an entire habitual state of carnality for 20 years. And then finally, you would be willing to confess Jesus as Lord. Well, he was beginning to deal with that. And one of the major sections of that was the doctrine of repentance. Because repentance had been reduced to simply changing the mind, as it was even back in the time of Martin Luther. And so he began to address that. And in some of the preaching that he did on that that became the book, he said this, and I quote, In 1517, Martin Luther fired the shot that has been heard around the world when he pinned, the church, pinned on the church door of Wittenberg the 95 Theses. He postulated 95 principles that he thought the Roman Catholic Church ought to acknowledge. And you may not have read those 95 theses, but primarily, as I told you, they deal with the whole practice of the indulgences, but they deal with more than that. But what is interesting is the first three of those 95 theses deal with the doctrine of repentance. Because that was the issue. The first one, just so you'll know what they are, the first three are, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ... In saying, repent ye, meant the whole life of the faithful is to be an act of repentance. That's the first one of the 95. And then he went on to say this on the second one. This is not saying or to be understood as the sacrament of penance. So he separates from the Roman Catholic tradition and theology and practice. It's not to be understood as the sacrament of penance of confession and absolution, which is administered by the priesthood. In other words... Martin Luther was saying, this has nothing to do with the Roman Catholic practice of penance or the priest or anything that they do. He also said in number three, yet he does not mean just interior repentance only. Nay, interior repentance is void if it does not produce different kinds of mortifications of the flesh. 
I said this morning that perhaps maybe uh, Martin Luther was reading the book of James, Faith Without Works is Dead. But if you know anything about the history of Martin Luther, he wasn't particularly fond of the book of James initially. He called it a right straw epistle. But the point is, is that Martin Luther understood the necessity of repentance and that true biblical repentance was not something you did with the priest in the confessional and that you absolved by your paying for your own sin in in numerous ways, but rather it was a practice of the whole life of turning from sin. And it should produce in your life fruits of mortification that you should be practicing the killing of sin. He went on to say, I'm quoting MacArthur again, He says, the three main points that Martin Luther brings up is this. Number one, repentance is a way of life. Number two, it has nothing to do with the church sacraments of confession and absolution. And three, it is not just inward. It produces mortification of the flesh. And then MacArthur said correctly, Martin Luther was right on target. And he was. But again, even before, Mark, before John addressed that very issue early on in 1937, which would be 85 years ago today, Dr. Harry A. Ironside, a great man of God and Bible teacher, will address this very problem of the depletion of the doctrine of repentance in the church. He addressed it by talking about that there's been a systematic diluting of the gospel message of repentance, that more and more want to exclude this doctrine from the message itself. This was 85 years ago. Ironside said that they're trying to exclude it from the message of the gospel. Let me quote just a moment from the actual book that he wrote entitled, Except Ye Repent. In that book, he said this, The doctrine of repentance is the missing note in many otherwise orthodox and fundamentally sound circles today. He went on to say that professed preachers of grace who, like the antinomians of old, decry the necessity of repentance, lest it seem to invalidate the freedom of grace. And that's what I referred to earlier, that some were saying, look, if you say you've got to repent, that's a human work, and that's not making grace grace. It has to be a free gift. It can't be something you do. Ironside recognized in his day the dangers of what we call today easy believism. Father, he went on to say, shallow preaching that does not grapple with the terrible fact of man's sinfulness and guilt, calling on all men everywhere to repent, results in very shallow conversions. I would add this, probably false conversions, most likely. And so we have myriads, he says, of glib-tongued professors today who have no evidence of regeneration whatsoever, prating the salvation by grace. They manifest no grace in their lives, loudly declaring that they are justified by faith alone. They fail to remember that faith without works is dead and that justification by works before men is not to be ignored as though it were a contradiction to the justification by faith before God. Harry Harry Ironside, also in 1937, was dead on target. And that's not only, it's not just him, it's not just MacArthur, it's not just Martin Luther. All the way back at the very beginning, just 50 years after John the Apostle died, we have the second epistle of Clement in 150 AD that said these words, Let us not merely call him Lord, for that will not save us. For he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will be saved, but he who does what is right. Thus, brothers, let us acknowledge him by our actions. This world and the world to come are two enemies. 
He says, this one means adultery and corruption and deceit, while the other gives them up. We cannot then be friends of both. To get one, we have to give up the other. That's repentance. That's repentance. You say, why do I bring that up? Because really what we find in verse 21 of James 1 is the whole habit and lifestyle of repentance in the believer. That's what James is talking about. And the last time we looked at the text together, at least in our church, we were talking about your response to the word. That's found in verse 19 and 20. It tells us there that we, we are to be slow to speak and swift to hear, and we're not to be those that show wrath, right? That's not just a general proverb for how you should listen to someone or being careful to speak. That's all in regards to how you handle and respond to the word of God. The context is the word of God. Verse 18 is, you are literally born from above by the will of God through the word of God. That's verse 18. But then as you move forward in life, you are to respect, honor, and listen carefully to and not resist the word of God as it is shared with you. And you are also to be careful how you speak it and teach it and communicate it. And you are to respond without anger, but rather, as we'll see later, respond with humility and obey, submit to the word of God. We know the context is on that very theme. In fact, in James 1.22, what does James say? Be doers of the what? The word and not hearers only. There's a very serious warning here. That you could literally be someone who listens to the Bible being taught and yet not obey what the Bible says. You can hear it, you can read it, you can listen to it and still not be one who literally does the word. And what James drives home here and in chapter 2 is that genuine believers practice obedience to the word, which involves repentance. James 1.25, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Then James turns very, very practical. He shows how genuine saving faith and submission to the word of God results in very practical outworkings of works of righteousness, if you could call it that. True saving faith gets very practical. Look at verse 26. He says, if anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. He's telling us, listen, you can say you are religious all you want, but if you're not able to control your tongue, then what you say with your mouth about your love and affection for Christ is useless. The word translated here, useless, is a word that means empty, devoid. Fruitless, idle, uh, powerless, and also has been translated the lacking of truth. It doesn't have the integrity. It doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. It's not real. And then he even says in verse 27, Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this. Now, if we were to stop there for a moment, we might think that what you would hear is this. Pure and undefiled religion before God is to be straight in your doctrine, orthodox, or be able to confess the confessions. Or to be able to make it very clear that you trust Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. No, what does he say? Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows. What? 
to visit orphans and widows, that gets down to the very basic needs that you find in the Old and the New Testament. I mean, they didn't have nursing homes back then, okay? They didn't have orphanages in those days. So people had to take care of each other. And so if, if you were a widow, the church's responsibility was to take care of the widows. It wasn't given over to the government. The same is with the orphans. I mean, the church had a responsibility to take care of those that were orphans. And so what he's saying is this, true, genuine, saving faith, that man, that woman who really genuinely follows the word of God is the one who's willing to do the basic necessities of righteousness to take care of those that are just in basic need. And then he also adds at the end of verse 27, a commitment to holiness and purity to keep oneself unspotted from the world. If you want to be a genuine believer, if you want to be a true follower of Christ, then you're going to be the one who visits the orphans and the widows in their time of need, and you're going to be one who is purposely keeping yourself unspotted from the world. Unspotted from the world. Chapter 2, verse 1, he talks about that you are to keep the, the faith without partiality. Very practical how he handles that, how someone comes into your assembly, one's rich, one's poor. How you respond to that is a reflection of your willingness to obey God's word. Chapter 2, verse 14, what profit is it then, brethren, if someone says he has faith and does not have works, can that kind of faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food and one of you says to them, depart in peace and be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things needed for the body. What does it profit? In other words, you claim you know Christ, you claim you believe in him, but if you don't work, if you don't obey, if you don't submit, what is the point? What is the point? True, genuine faith produces works. That's the point. Years ago, whenever I was first saved, and I didn't have enough discernment to even know that he was talking about this, but the pastor of a church down in Florida that I was uh, acquainted with said this, that no person can have the God of this universe living in their body and there not be some evidence of it. I mean, you think about this. We're not talking about just a religion. We're talking about God himself lives in you. Is it possible for you to have the God of the universe, the Holy Spirit himself, living inside of you and there be no change? None. And you can just say, yes, I remember the time whenever I walked the aisle and I signed the card and I prayed the prayer. I remember that day. But the rest of your life is not even remotely close to the practice of repentance or obedience to the word of God. There's no desire there whatsoever. I talk to people all the time like that, all the time. They will tell me whenever I ask them, are you sure that if you died right now, you would go to heaven? Most of the time they will tell me yes. And they'll tell me that they are sure because they're a good person. Or in many cases, especially in the context of the church, is that they'll tell me yes, because I remember that I was saved on so-and-so date. But you know, in the Bible, that never is an evidence of salvation. You never find anywhere in 1 John or James or any other portion of scripture where it says, if you want to make sure that you're a Christian, make sure you remember the day. I mean, I know a lot of people who are saved that don't even know the day. They can't remember it. I remember John MacArthur said on one occasion, he doesn't remember a time he didn't believe. Because he was raised in a Christian home with a father who was a pastor. I mean, you're constantly in front of it all the time. You know, and daddy says it's true and he believes it. He doesn't remember a time that he didn't believe. And many people are like that. 
The point is, is that whenever you want to decide whether or not you're a genuine Christian, you don't look at a date on a calendar. You look at a change of life. You look at an attitude of repentance. In other words, you can define how a person really is a Christian or not by how and what their attitude is towards sin. You read what it says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 through 10. Very clearly there, it makes the distinction between the one who says that he has no sin, he makes God a liar. And the one that says he doesn't sin, plural, also deceives himself. But the one who's a genuine Christian is verse 9 in 1 John 1. He that confesses his sin. The one who homilegao says the same thing about his sin that God says about it. In other words, he is a repenter. He's a repenter. So as we come to the text, I'm not going to spend the amount of time I did this morning on it, but I do want to just highlight some of the points here in verse 21. I want to talk about two points here in verse 21. That's all we're covering is verse 21. And there are two points. The first is the assumption of repentance of wickedness. And secondly, the attention to reception of the word. And you'll see why I use the word assumption here in just a moment in verse 21. Look at verse 21 again. Therefore, it says, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. Now, to be clear here, he's not talking to unbelievers. He's talking to Christians here. He's talking to Christians. He's been talking to them already for the first 20 verses. He's talking about how you handle trials, how you respond to trials, how you handle temptations, how you respond to, respond to temptations. Now he's getting, in, getting into how you and I are to handle the word and respond to the word and whether or not that is even part of your life or not. So in verse 21, he says, therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. The word therefore, it's an interesting little Greek word. Deo is the word D-I-O. It's a little different than what you normally see for the word therefore in the Greek text. But this one usually is understood as going both directions. It can mean because and therefore at the same time. So what he's saying is, based upon what I have said, because of what I've already said and your need to respond to the word, being swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath, he says, because of that, this is how you should respond to the word. And then therefore, he says, based upon the fact that you have been birthed by God in his word, verse 18, therefore, this is how you should respond to the word. That's what he means by that word therefore there. And he's calling on us, according to what it says in verse 20, not to uh, be wrathful. That is not to be angry in our response to the word of God. You say, why would someone be angry when it comes to the word of God? Listen, whenever God's word starts poking at you and, and digging deep inside of your soul and your mind and your heart, sometimes we have a tendency to get a little offended with that. And we don't want to give up our sin. And we don't want to give up our action, especially when someone confronts us and says, brother, you know what? Your attitude stinks. And a lot of times what happens is we, we bow up, you know, instead of humbly submit to what the word of God says. One of the most difficult things in church life is church discipline. You know why? People get mad. I mean, they get really mad. Who are you to come poking around in my life and to tell me that what I'm doing is wrong? Well, God's word says what you're doing is wrong. And it, I've seen Christians, at least professed Christians, get very upset. And that's one of the reasons why in church discipline you find four steps there 
that allow for the potential that this guy might just be a hard-nosed, stiff-necked believer. I mean, he has an opportunity for at least three steps and then four before he's put out of the church. Because why? Because, listen, we have a tendency to respond the wrong way whenever we're confronted about our sin. And so instead of doing that, we need to respond positively, and that's exactly what James is calling for. And one of the first things he wants you and I to do in verse 21 is to lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. Now, just to be clear, the word all here means all. It means every single act of filthiness, thought of filthiness, every, every, uh, every bit of the overflow of wickedness. In other words, there's nothing left out, nothing that's allowed at all. All of it is to be dealt with. The word lay aside means to take off. Literally, it's used of taking off clothes. It was referred to a number of times of taking off dirty, dingy, stained garments. That's the idea. You are to do this. It's an aorist verb. It's a participle. It's middle and reflexive. And what that means is this. There's a call for a definite action, a decisive action to do this. You are middle reflexive. You are to do this yourself. It's a participle which refers to the practice of it and the characteristic of it in your life. But you need to make a decisive action in your life to lay aside, to rid yourself of those things which are dirty and filthy. We see this in the New Testament mentioned a number of times in different ways like Romans 13, 12 The night is far spent, the day is at hand, therefore let us cast off the works of darkness. Ephesians 4.22, put off concerning the former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to its deceitful lust. Ephesians 4.25, therefore putting away lying, let each one speak truth to his neighbor. Colossians 3.8, but now you yourselves are to put off all these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded so much with a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. See a theme in Scripture? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore laying aside all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, all envy, and all evil speaking. The picture behind all of this is, is that you and I literally are carrying around all of this sin. It's literally laying on our body as clothes would lay on our body. And they're dirty, they're dingy, they're filthy. And he says, take them off and lay them aside. Get rid of the filth. Get rid of the filth. Now, if calling sin and sinful actions filth is a problem for you, that's just one description of sin throughout the Bible. I mean, it's referred to in the book of uh, Romans chapter 3 as an open tomb. And that's not like an open tomb with no body in it. The idea behind that is an open tomb with a decaying, rotting corpse in there. The point is, is that the Bible refers often to sinful actions and sinful thoughts and deed as filthiness. Filthiness. And we are to lay it aside. The fact that it's an heiress verb has the idea of assuming that this is already taking place. Because it's an heiress participle, you literally can translate it, having laid these things aside. Young's literal translation actually has it that way. Wherefore, having put aside all filthiness. It assumes the reality of it, that it's already taking place in your life. I mean, James is basically saying he can assume that since you are a Christian, that you're going to be doing this. 
that you're going to be willing to do this, that you're going to acknowledge your desire to do this. The New American Standard actually captures the middle voice when it says, therefore, ridding yourselves of all filthiness of the flesh. I think what you find there is that there's a personal emphasis here in the text. Don't go trying to rid everybody else's sin. You rid your own. This is that passage that Jesus talked about. You know, you go around looking around at everybody else's sin and you see that little speck in the eye of of your neighbor and yet you have this two by four plank coming out of your face. I mean, that's the idea. You and I ought to be laying aside our own sin instead of worrying about everybody else needing to lay their sin aside. We are very, very gifted at this, buddy. We can look around and we can see everybody else's sin and how bad they are, how horrible they are. But when it comes to us and our own personal look at our own lives, we have a tendency to excuse, to redefine, to excuse all of our actions and our deeds. We pull out on the interstate, someone cuts us off, we get angry. But that, if it just wasn't them pulling out like that, they did that. You know how it goes. I don't have to give you illustration after illustration. I'm sure every one of us can come up with them. We literally fill our hearts and our minds with that kind of stuff. Yeah, we are to be the ones that, lay, that are laying aside these sins in our lives. I think if we were to spend the necessary time just working on our own personal holiness, we would be filled up, we would fill up all the hours of our day. Right? If we can just deal with what remains, which is really what is the text is talking about, dealing with those remaining sins that are there, that are filthiness. And then he also mentions here that we are to lay aside all overflow of wickedness. This is very interesting. The overflow of wickedness. And what he's, going, what he's using this particular terminology for is the abundance of leftover sin and iniquity in our lives. In other words, you know, you think that you're okay once you become a Christian. In fact, your battle has just begun. Before you were a Christian, you could kind of live in sin and not be a big deal. Now that you have become a Christian and the light is much brighter and the closer you get to the Lord, the brighter it gets, right? And the more you see your sin, you will see yourself like Isaiah did, that you're an unclean thing. You're an unclean thing. Or as even in Zechariah chapter 3 and verse 3, Joshua was talked there of having uh, clothed himself with filthy garments and that he needed to have those filthy garments removed and have his iniquity removed. There's another point that I think would be good to bring up here. One author said this, God is never satisfied with partial purity. If you think that you finally have arrived, then you have missed the point. There's always more sin. There's always more evil there's always the remaining sin that is in us that needs to be dealt with and we need to be constantly dealing with that in our lives we need to deal with the overflow parousia that which exceeds exceeds the normal that which is comprehensively all Uh, it can refer also the word wickedness is a very popular and very well used word in the new testament kakia has the idea of just inherent evil inherent sin that which remains in us So what James is saying is that we need to take off all the filthiness and we need to remove and get rid of all the overflow and abundance and remaining wickedness so that, the point is, we can receive the implanted word and we can respond appropriately to the implanted word. You know, one of the things that we all know is this. I remember years ago seeing this on a sign on a church. 
It says the Bible will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from the Bible. And that's so true. Those who want to allow sin in their lives will find it much more difficult to spend hours in the word. But those who spend hours in the word, reading, memorizing, studying, practicing, repenting, will find themselves mortifying the deeds of the flesh and dealing with that remaining sin in your life. They both go together. You can't have one without the other. You can't truly be able to um, enjoy and reflect and learn and repent of sin apart from the word of God. You need that element. In fact, it says in Hebrews, right, that the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. It cuts both ways. It's able to discern between the thoughts and the intents. Do you know what the difference is between a thought and an intent? I mean, the point is God's word is able to dig down deep and pierce deep into the human heart and the human soul where none of us can go. As I told our church this morning, you know, I can actually just get up here and read scripture to you verse after verse. Mark could do the same. And that would be more beneficial for you than what happens in most churches in America. Just to read the Bible to you. Just for you to listen to what the word of God says. Because it has the ability to penetrate the heart. Those verses I just read earlier. I don't know about you, but it happens to me every time I read them. When I read all of those verses about laying aside this particular kind of sin, immediately I go into this mode of checking what's in my heart. Do I have that in my heart? Is it there? Do I act like that? Do I think like that? And anytime you listen to Paul Washer, you better be in that mode, right? That's for sure. I read a cute little uh, tweet on Twitter. I'm only on one social media site, and that's Twitter for following a couple of guys I like, like Steve Lawson and others. And, um, but anyway, there was a person on there talking about how to listen to Paul Washer. Here's a, and I don't remember all the steps, but one of them, don't clap. <laughs> that was one, <laughs> don't clap. And then the second one was, make sure you look at him. And then, and then number three, make sure you confess your sin because <laughs> he's staring at you, right? So it's so interesting. But listen, we all understand how that feels with the word of God zeroing in on us. And the closer we get to the Lord, the more that occurs, doesn't it? Listen to what James 4, 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You say, that's great. We all want to draw near to God. We all want to get close to the Lord, Right? I think all of us desire that, but whenever you get near God, whenever you get near Christ, things get a little bit dicey. And the reason why is because once you're close to God, you're literally in the brilliant light of his holiness. That's why it says in verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Then cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. You come into the presence of God in the presence of Christ. There is not necessarily going to be this gleeful time. At least initially, you're going to find yourself overwhelmed with your own sinfulness. Look at the history in the Old Testament and the New of what happens whenever men and women come in face to face with God. Isaiah, whenever he saw the Lord in a vision high and lifted up, 
and the cherubim crying back and forth, holy, holy, holy. Isaiah didn't say, man, this is really great, man. I'm just going to stay here for a while. This is wonderful. No, Isaiah the prophet sees himself absolutely as evil. I am a man of unclean lips. He says, but Isaiah, you're a prophet of God, but no, my lips are dirty. You have all the other examples, like even in the New Testament, where you had the disciples in the boat crossing the Sea of Galilee, and the storm comes up, and Jesus is asleep in the front of the boat, right? You remember that account? I mean, these were experienced fishermen who understood the Sea of Galilee. This wasn't a surprise to them, but it was such a severe storm that water was coming into the boat, filling the boat, and they were about to sink, and Jesus was asleep. They wake him up and say, don't you care that we're about to die? And Jesus rebukes the wind, rebukes the sea. It all goes calm immediately. And it says in that text that now they were exceedingly afraid. And the reason why is because now they know who's in the boat. This is not just a man. This is God. And this God who's in the boat sees straight through me. Later on, you remember Peter, he was fishing. He'd been fishing all night. Again, an experienced fisherman. If anybody knows where the fish are without a fish finder, he does. And yet he can't find them. He doesn't catch anything. They're exhausted. Jesus shows up and says, cast on the other side of the boat, right? That doesn't fit well with somebody who knows what they're doing, supposedly. But they do that. They cast on the other side of the boat, and they catch so much fish, they can't even bring them all into the boat. It about breaks the nets. What is Peter's response? Depart from me. I'm a sinful man. Why? Because he comes face to face with God again. Over and over again, every time you see that in the Old and the New Testament, there's this absolute total reaction that I am a sinner and I need to repent of my sin. That's what we find in 2 Corinthians 7 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness and all of the flesh and the spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Listen to what Paul said in Ephesians 5 1 and following. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us. But fornication and uncleanness and covetousness, let it not even be named among you. As is fitting for the saints, neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather you should be known as those who give thanks. The need of repentance and removal of sin is clear from this context. It's clear from this verse. And the reason why you and I should be repenters is because if you know anything about scripture, sin does not produce life. Sin kills. All sin kills. That's why he said in chapter 1, verse 15, he says, After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin has been full grown, it brings forth what? Death. That's where it goes. It ends up in death. In Genesis 2, 17, God told Adam and Eve, If you take of this tree, the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And they did die that day. They died spiritually immediately. According to what it says in Romans 5, 12, that through one man, Adam that is, that sin came into the world and death came through sin. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Psalm 9.17 says the wicked shall be turned into hell. 
There are hundreds of verses that warn us of the severity of the consequences of sin. So why should we not lay aside all filthiness and get rid of the overflow of wickedness? Because if we're going to be like Christ, we must be repenters. We must be. One of the essential elements of that is our attention to the reception of the word. That's our second point. Look at verse 21 again. This will come quick. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness or humility the implanted word which is able to save your souls. The word receive here, dekomai, a very common word, it means to welcome. To welcome. I saw a sign this past week that you can put on your doorstep for Halloween if you want. It says, go away. Go on, get. <laughs> In other words, you're not welcome. I'm just joking. I hope you don't do that. Take an opportunity to share a track with somebody if they come to your house or whatever, by all means. But, you know, it's amazing to me how often you find that even in the context of the church and believers that they don't welcome the word. They're more apt to say, oh, yeah, I believe it. I believe it. But whenever you actually present it to them and bring it to their heart and show them what the Bible requires of them, it's not so much of a welcome mat at all. But that's exactly what James is calling on us to do, to welcome it, to receive. And notice what he says, the implanted word. That's a very interesting way to say that. He doesn't just say receive the word. He doesn't say receive the word of God. He doesn't say receive the word of Christ. He says receive the implanted word. Why would he say that? Well, the reason why is because you're backing up to verse 18. How were you saved? You were saved through the word of God. It literally is implanted in you. And the word implant simply means to plant. To plant in you. God has taken his word and planted it in you and has changed you, regenerated you by his power. And he leaves within you his word. By the way, the word word here is singular. It's not words, plural, it's word. It does have the definite article, the, in front of it in the Greek text. And the idea is not just some specific statement, but the whole entirety of the word. In other words, welcome not just one part of the word, but welcome the whole word. The all the word. Why would we want to do that? Well, because look at it, the last part. It is able to save your souls. It is able to save your souls. The word able is the Greek word dunamis. We get dynamite from it. It's a classic word used throughout the New Testament to refer to ability. Uh, it talks about that no man can come to Christ unless the Father draws him. That word can there is the word dunamis. It means ability. No one has the ability to come to Christ apart from God the Father drawing him. So in this context here, it says that this implanted word, an amazing statement, has the ability to save your soul. And here he's not just talking about the spiritual part of man. Although the word does save the soul. We get that. Yes, it does. But the soul, or the way it's used here by James, being a Hebrew he was, he would use a Hebrewism, which is basically the soul referring to the entire person. You find it used that way in Acts chapter 2 and verse 41 when it says 3,000 souls were added to the church. It doesn't mean 3,000 spirits were floating around everywhere. Or when it talks about it in 2 Peter chapter 3, whenever Noah 
uh, and his family members were saved, it says eight souls were saved. It's not talking about just the spirits of them being saved. Their bodies, their whole person was saved. And so it is in this case that whenever you are responding and welcoming the word of God to you, you are literally saving not only your spirit slash soul, you are saving your body. I guess another way of looking at that is what happens whenever you don't obey and honor the word of God, what happens to your body? Read Romans 1, you'll find out, right? We can end up in a lot of messes because we do not honor the word of God, even with our bodies, and the same is the case for our souls, and God tells us that it has the ability to sozo, to save, to deliver your soul. No doubt, clearly from hell, yes, right. It has the ability to save your soul from hell. It has the ability to save you, your spirit and your soul from the very power of sin. Now it has the ability in the future to save your soul and your body from the very presence of sin. In the future, the word of God has all of that power to do so. It's a beautiful truth, isn't it? And that's exactly what our Lord has in mind. That's what James has in mind here. Let me close with a text here, just a couple of verses, and I'll remind you of them. In John six sixty three, it says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Then listen to this. The words that I speak to you are spirit and life. John six sixty eight, the same chapter, after many of the disciples that were following Jesus left him, and he turns to Peter and the other disciples and says, Are you guys going to go away too? Peter responds by saying this in verse 68, Lord, to whom will we go? You are the one who has the words of eternal life. You know, I think too often, I think we minimize the importance of Scripture. I know we talk about it. I understand that. I know that many of you here today believe that. But I think, I think sometimes we have a tendency to minimize just how powerful the word of God implanted in your soul is. And think of it like this. Every time you read, every time you memorize, every time you study, every time you listen to a good sermon that has good interpretation of the Bible, you are implanting that word in your life. That's able to save your soul. Paul understood this, didn't he, in chapter 2. Three of Second Timothy, all scripture is given by the very breath of God, Theonoustos. It means the breathing out of God. Whenever you're reading the, the text of scripture, you're literally getting the very breath of God. It's profitable, he says, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. And then Psalm 19, verse 7 says about the word of God, and it uses synonyms. Law, testimony, statutes, commandment, fear, and judgments to refer to the law of God and the word of God. And it says this in Psalm 19, 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The word converting means to totally transform the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The Hebrew word for simple means a, a mind with an open door where hinges go both ways. In other words, they have no discernment. They don't know when to shut the door. The simple-minded person. So he says, the testimony of the Lord is sure, steadfast, concrete, making wise the man who has no discernment. 
The statutes of the Lord are right, righteous, perfect, just, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, holy, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And more to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. So we need to be, as one pastor said, repenting repenters. Constantly laying aside, getting rid of all the filthiness and all the remaining wickedness that is in our lives Purging ourselves of those attitudes, those thoughts, those actions that dishonor the Lord. And then constantly receiving and welcoming the implanted word. And constantly growing the implanted word. Amen. As we turn to that very important time in our service of the Lord's Supper. I remind you that it was indeed the word that gave his life for us. He died on a cross to satisfy the just demands of a holy God so that you and I could be made righteous in his sight. He lived a perfect life in obedience to the word and the law of God so that you and I could receive perfect righteousness. What we have here today are two elements. We have the bread and the juice. They represent the body and the blood of Christ. They are not the body and the blood of Christ. But they do represent the body and blood of Christ. And I do believe that whenever the church comes together like we do with the Lord's Supper, that there is a unique meeting of God with his people. This is something that we are to celebrate and to celebrate often because it is a way that we not only remember what the Lord has done for us, but also that we declare to the world and to ourselves even that Jesus Christ gave himself for us and that he's coming back to take us to be with him. So a couple of warnings about the Lord's Supper. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, I would encourage you not to take the Lord's Supper. This is for believers. Many of you have children in here. I would caution you as parents to make sure that you understand where your children are regarding the Lord's Supper. Instruct them wisely in this. Let them know that this is something for those whenever they embrace Christ as Savior and Lord. Walk with them and encourage them through that. But also, if you're a believer here today and you have sin you haven't dealt with, you need to deal with it. Don't wait. Don't say, well, I'll deal with it later on. No, repent now. The Bible doesn't say confess at 9 o'clock at night. It says confess now. We are to be confessors and repenters now. If sin shows up in thought, word, or deed, deal with it then. Don't wait. And you can cleanse and be cleansed today and from the Lord himself and take the Lord's Supper and be obedient to him. Amen? Let's take a moment and pray together, and I'll give you an opportunity to pray too. Our Father, we come here today because you've saved us. We're not better people than anyone else. We are sinners, Lord God, that you have graciously forgiven. And we thank you, Lord, for that 
marvelous work of grace, that great work of mercy that you can give to us because you did the work. You satisfied your justice by sending Jesus to die on the cross for us, to take upon himself the full cup of wrath that we deserved. Lord, we are a blessed people because you bless us. We are regenerate because you give us life. We are clean because you clean us. We are righteous because of your righteousness. And Lord, we thank you for your son. We thank you for Jesus who came and shed his blood. We thank you for the body that you gave to him that he lived a righteous life with. That he never gave in to the temptations of Satan. Never disobeyed your law. But walked perfectly with you, pleasing you in everything. We thank you, Lord, for his willing submission to the cross, his willingness to go and to take upon himself the worst form of death that could be given through the crucifixion. We thank you, Lord, for taking for him taking every blow in the face, even the hammering with the clubs, the crown of thorns, the nails in the hands and the feet, and the spear in the side. We thank you, Lord, for his willingness to endure the hours that he did on the cross the darkness that came and the wrath of God the Father upon his own Son. Lord, today as we celebrate the